Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Welcome back to the next episode of the Keto Naturopath. This is a podcast on YouTube, the first that we're doing. So just to sort of put it all out, out there is that all of our old podcasts are going to be started again also on this channel on YouTube sequentially from the very first one we did all the way up to last week. At the same time, every Thursday will be a new podcast. So it'll be two old per week and one new per week. And that's how we're going to roll forward on the podcast. So what's the point of doing a podcast versus a YouTube? Uh, well, what I find is a podcast, I've always felt this way about the podcast. It was just me and the microphone, my thoughts, and maybe I have some documents in front of me and maybe I'm looking at something on the screen. Maybe I'm interviewing somebody, but it's much more conversational. I'm not going to get stuck on a, a, a PowerPoint that I had to put together or some particular graph. If there's anything like that, I'm just going to call it from memory or I'll possibly have it in front of me to refer to, but mostly I want to keep it as a conversation that I'm talking to you personally, right in your ear, wherever you are, in the car or in the kitchen, maybe out for a jog, that's fine, because there's a lot of topics that just need to be talked about, and we don't need the minutia of the details to present this. This isn't a dissertation, this isn't my thesis, this is me sort of squeezing out from the sponge of my experience things that I think were either being misrepresented currently in medicine, especially on YouTube. YouTube is like, wow. Um, and I feel there needs to be a degree of authenticity sort of injected into that conversation, as well as experience counts for something. Having done something for 20 plus years, 20, yeah, more than a couple decades, oh, it hurts to say that, <laughs> that um, is something. Because you learn the nuances of certain issues, you know that things are not black and white, but how to guide people out of the morass of their ill health, let's say, to, to solid ground where they kind of know some basic things that they can do to pull themselves back. Nothing is a guarantee, by the way. So when we talk about a study this or a study that, nothing is a guarantee. We are a large population of people, and I do believe we are very genetically different enough. And so, you know, I talk about SNPs, single nuclear polymorphisms, and that's vital to 
how I look at people. It's not the definitive way, but it has to be a variable in the conversation of what are we going to do about this person on their situation, whatever that thing is that they're here to see me for. So I do want to go into the idea of SNPs and how you would use them and where you would look for them um, and perhaps how you can interpret them on their own. I don't feel I have to be the guy interpreting it for you. You probably will need somebody or other to help you jump into this, speaking of morass, a, a lot of numbers and a lot of what the heck does this mean? But once you sort of get the basics straightened out, you're pretty much on your own. Or at least the quality of your questions will become much more specific to you and you'll get to understand more about why some SNPs are much more important than others. And therefore, when you say that, that there's a priority, you look for certain areas that may be problematic. Once you take care of those areas, yeah, you can go on to other potential SNPs, but really there's not that many huge targets. There's a few networks you need to look at, understand why they're networks and how they relate to each other. But that's pretty much it. So the the company I use now is Stratagene. Is it perfect? Is it the be all and end all? It's a company. Uh, they're honest and that's kind of more than most companies that I work with, I should say. And I appreciate that. Um, I wish they would cover more SNPs. I wish they would do a lot of things, but it's good enough. And it helps me just get started with people. I don't hold SNPs or a company like Stratagene, and there's a lot of others out there as being the single company that's going to interpret your complete genome. That's too many possibilities. So we're going after the bigger areas that have been pretty well documented. And, um, you know, when I was practicing about uh, two decades, well, when I first started practicing about two decades ago, I would have to order each SNP as an independent lab test through Quest. That was incredibly tedious and boring. And you figure looking back, that was almost lucky that I would get a hit. But then again, I started with a few that I knew were a problem. Those who had been studied, there was a number of studies on there saying, hey, well, maybe this might be an issue for this person. So then I would look and I'd find often there was kind of a correlation. But guess what? If you have a SNP, which brings up another point, if you have a SNP, a mutation, a polymorphism, right? There's many of these various mutations in this particular gene that's like we're looking at. It doesn't mean that you will have a problem. This isn't like, oh, you have the BRAC1 or the BRAC2 genes and the incidence and the probability, high or low, of getting breast cancer, right? That's the, the certainty that you have a certain mutation that leads to X of a problem. BRAC1, BRAC2, for instance, really depends on a word called penetrance. And that is a genetic word, penetrance. So a high penetrance. So there are genes, none that I look at, and have nothing to do with what I work with. But there are genes, more in oncology, that have a penetrance up to like 80 plus percent. So that probability that if you have this mutation, and if you have this mutation on both genes, you would have a very high likelihood of a certain outcome, right? That's nothing what I do. 
It's nothing what I do. SNPs are far, far lower. They are not black or white. They are simply a, an impairment of an enzyme. So usually there's a few genes that come together to make an enzyme. And now if you have one of these mutations, the chances are this enzyme, which could be vital, is just impaired and it moves more slowly. Some it's just the opposite. It moves very quickly. That causes a whole other possible problem. So what I want to get across, because I get a lot of questions that say, oh, um, could you do my SNPs? Oh, could you do this? Do I have that? You know, I, the curiosity is there and I'm glad the curiosity is there and I'm glad the questions are coming. But don't think, don't leave with an interpretation that you now are set up for a certain problem. I've had people that um, I've suggested that they, you know, get their report, they get the report, and then they, then they spend some time with me, and we, I look at some things, but I have to, you know, I look at all the variations and so on. But I have to know, what is their context? Why are they doing this? If it's just intellectual curiosity, and they don't have a chief complaint, they're not overweight, they don't have... Um, some sort of impairment or some sort of limitation in their way of looking at their life, then there's not much I can tie it to, right? So that's why I look at blood work. I have a long panel for blood work, which is not this. And that's why I also look at intracellular things. And that's also, at times, I look at hormonal things, you know, especially for women um, going through menopause, pre and post. It's important to see these things. They all play a part and they all overlap, by the way. They're not so different that they're unrelatable. Each one of those is a panel, a very different panel. And it helps to fulfill a bigger picture of putting things together. And it is in that still pretty imperfect. So back to this person who gets this, you know, snips and we interpret it and say, oh, here's this area and that area, you're good or bad or whatever they have. And, and by itself, it's kind of unattached to things, right? I, I don't have their blood work. If I saw, wow, this person has elevated homocysteine or high inflammatory markers, and I saw certain SNPs, that would give me a connection to work with. I can see how these relate and so on and so forth. And I would show them diagrammatically how this would work. And this is where we're going to intervene. Here's what we're going to try now to change that. And you tell me how you feel with the change. So it's happened a couple of times that people go, wow, it's great. That's, you know, this thing that you suggested, supplement, which is supplement or dietary change, of course, are pretty much the only tools that I have, um, worked great. And either weight was lost or sleep improved, energy improved, whatever it is. And I said, well, that worked for you. It might not work for somebody else, but look what we looked. We had to look under the hood right? And go, oh, well, you got this. Well, this is what we need. These are the tools we need to adjust these things you have under your hood. So one size does not fit all. I so want you to get that point. One size does not fit all because when you go to a conference, whether it's a keto conference, right? So this is the Keto Naturopath podcast on YouTube, Keto Naturopath. So you think I'm deep into keto. I am. I think that a low carb, um, required amount of protein and appropriate fat is really the way we eat ancestrally. But when you go to a conference, you get these presentations as this one size fits all. You all need to do this. 
You all need to drop your carbs. Well, not everybody needs to drop the carbs. You all need to increase your protein. Well, not everybody needs to increase their proteins. So you look at, you look under the hood for them. And by the way, yes, we obviously are humans and we share enough commonalities. And so such presentations are worthwhile, but that needs to be followed up with your own individual lab data. I am so lab data oriented. I mean, I consider it's a data driven decision that we are discussing about, right? And so we need to collect data. If we're just having a pie in the sky, I have actually people call me that have known me over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, one couple called and said, oh, my wife has all these hot flashes and so on and so forth. And, you know, what should we do? And I go, well, um, back maybe 20 plus years ago, I probably would have put together a Chinese herbal formula and that was working for a lot of people when I would, but even then in Chinese herbal medicine, you would have to do a pulse diagnosis. You'd have to do a tongue diagnosis. So at least there you're getting some data that was about that person in front of you. And then you would model your formulation on that. So when we're now into laboratory work, that is more specific. You know, you got to go to a place to get your blood drawn or you have to have a sequence of dried urine sent into the company or what else do we do? Blood work, blood work, uh, saliva and urine are pretty much what we look at. And so we put these things together. It's still the same thing of finding out what is this person in front of me look like and what are their, what are their issues? And so, the analogy that I use now is it's like driving. Uh, as an adult, most people can drive in the United States. I understand if you live in New York City, you probably don't have to. And if you live in a big city, you probably don't have to. But for the most part, we can say that most adults in the United States can drive, They're legal drivers. So that's good. They've learned a certain skill. However, they really need to pay attention to what's outside the windshield. So I see data for that moment in time, right? They're driving down the street. It's that moment in time. How fast are they going? Do they need to take a left or a right? Where are the other cars around? That is the ability of looking at data in that particular moment to determine what they need to do. And sometimes what they need to do is nothing. Keep on doing exactly what they're doing, right? So, but if you're to say, that's great. You got a driver's license and you know, you're now a responsible adult, but you haven't earned the right to look out your windshield yet. Wow. Uh, I think that's going to make it kind of difficult. And so this person who's driving without being able to look out the windshield is going to have a lot of complaints. <laughs> you know, they're not going to be able to respond to the environment. They're not going to be able to consume the data that they actually need to consume to use this vehicle. And that's how I see life in general. Uh, you can say and argue against the idea you don't need data because 100 years ago or 200 years ago, let's say, they really didn't have much in the way of kind of data. Well, they did have doctors and doctors did pretty much do tongue and pulse in many different cultures. Um, so even back then, the idea of needing data to differentiate the person in front of you from the collective mass of we are all the same thing was important. Now it's become a little more sophisticated and it's going to probably even get more sophisticated. Um, I'm just saying it's important. It's not to be all and end all, but it's important. So back to the idea that if you have a certain mutation, single nuclear polymorphism, a certain SNP, let's say me, for instance, I have MTHFR C677T, which is the slowest form of, so it stands for 
methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. So it's the reductase says it's an enzyme that breaks down the MTHFR. So I have the slowest form of that. That's just one enzyme, by the way. So it's not my whole life is dependent on it, but it means this guy has always had, this guy being me, has always had a problem being able to convert folate from his diet into, to have, needs to be methylated so it can then go on to uh, combine with B12 and then come into the methylation cycle to be able to reduce homocysteine and turn it to methionine and who cares and make things like methionine all real important neurotransmitter modulators. Right now it's gotten to be pretty complicated. And I've always had a problem with that. And that particular problem was associated with many uh, other conditions too. For instance, dyslexia, or which is part of the, spec the autistic spectrum disorder, right? ASD. And so I was pretty severely dyslexic. Um, I can speak pretty well, but if I had to read out loud, I'm sure I would embarrass your grandmother. And uh, just to have live, live with that, that there are just like separate halves of brain. You have to, certain things you'd work at and some things you don't have to work at that, that much. All right, so that's just one gene. But there's a lot of people that have that that don't have any problems. Well, they got off because they had other compensating. Your body is a massive system of compensations as well. It's not just a highway that there's a blockage in the highway. If there is a blockage in the highway, usually there's a way to go around it. And sure enough, there's a way of going around what I just explained to you about lowering homocysteine. But if you now have blockages in the, these some of these alternative pathways, you will have a problem. So that's why we look at these things collectively. And just because you have one gene mutation, uh, how many times have people emailed me or said, oh, I have MTHFR, what should I do to fix it? I don't know, is it bothering you? Is it an issue? How do you know it's an issue? It might not be an issue. So the putting it in the context of not only other SNPs that you may have, may not have, you know, not everybody has wild and crazy mutations and have all these problems, uh, but some do. So let me give you a story of, so my theme here is there's not always a problem even if you have a particular mutation. You have to look at the collective, you have to look at the pattern, if you will. You have to look, put it that, look at the pattern, and then you have to look at external reality. The external reality from coming from SNPs would be going to one's basic lab panels. You know, what are their uh, liver enzymes? What's their, yeah, you look at the lipid panel, what would their, obviously insulin and cholesterol, uh, it, sorry, insulin and glucose, even look at glucagon, certainly the vitamin D, and on and on it goes, your omega-6-3. So there's a lot of other things we look at, but we put these together and say, hmm, is there a fit here? Is there something, by tweaking things over here, that it would help remedy some of the problems we found in their blood work? That's what we do. And it's very important. But to assume, simply because we looked at this map, so when you look at genomes, people get kind of narcissistic. You know, it's, this is all about me. All these things are just about me. I get to explain my life through this particular set of genetic reports. In part, you can, and in part, you could, but it, the attachment should be not that close. It should be interest to you, of course, but don't be too attached to it because it may make for you to be so obviously uniquely you, but it may benefit you in some ways as well. You know, it may, um, so don't look for problems. And if you find certain 
abnormalities, polymorphisms that we know about, don't automatically leap to the assumption that you have a problem. So here we go. So there was an um, interesting thing about the world now is that you can find pretty much anybody you ever knew or cared about in the last 30 to 50 years, right? You can go back, high school class people are now, you know, associated. You find everybody you, you ever knew in high school is now online, right? If it's not through Facebook or one of the others that, or simply knowing each other or an email is to, so suddenly these connections can be remade. So um, going back 20, 25 years of former patients was it's obviously a lot easier. And so people have called and said, hey, can I have an appointment? And I explained, I just work online, but yeah, we can do it by getting labs and doing a Zoom consult kind of thing. So there was this one woman who has always been overweight by maybe neighborhood of 50 pounds. That's been always pretty much her, her chief complaint and I think a little... She always felt you're just kind of unclear thinking. And, um, well, 20 plus years ago, I wasn't that aware of all these, how to read various patterns and so on and so forth. But she always had one lab that I will remember. I don't have her folder anymore, her chart. Her, she always had chronically high inflammation as measured by CRP. As measured by CRP. And so it was like, we're talking 10 and 11. So what should that be? It should be under one. So she's 10 and 11, always, all the time, but it should be under one. And, you know, we worked on diet and my perspective on diet hasn't changed too much. I mean, other than subtracting the starches and the, and the uh, whole grains. Um, and I got some improvement, not much. So then she called, been in touch with her in this last year. And I can, you know, when somebody sees you so often, you can almost remember every, every page in their chart. And sure enough, I said, you know, what we need to do is a SNP report, if you will, or a genomic analysis, and just take a look if there was any associations there. And sure enough, I did find a pattern that is very specific, and she always had fatty liver. It was non-alcoholic fatty liver. So that's now become a thing, especially if you watch the recent YouTubes. Uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver. And so what is non, what is non-alcoholic fatty liver about? Well, it's, it's about if you keep on having it, eventually your liver sort of starts to die. And then you basically suffer the consequences of a dying liver, which is, um, it could be psych, psychiatric because as your liver starts to die, you can't get rid of all the toxins and so on and so forth. But before all that kind of extreme points happen, usually it's difficulty with losing weight. Usually it's with um, history of gallstones. Usually it's uh, perhaps an uncomfortable menopause if they're old enough to have that. So I knew her premenopausal, now I know her postmenopausally. But it was such a fit for her personality to look at, and we were looking at um, mutations that were not MTHFR, but uh, she had some of those too. Uh, that's a, that's a problem. It could, it's a contributing problem, if you will. But I think the heart of her issue was the fact that she couldn't generate, make her own choline. And that has to do with a number of SNPs, I can say now, right? A number of SNPs that has to do with if you, um, if you don't have choline in your diet, that humans should be able to, and the perfect humans should be able to make about 30% of their daily requirement for choline. Because choline is acetylcholine and it's used for a lot of things. You know, it's used for a membrane of all the cells. So it has so many different purposes. Having 
uh, a self-induced method to make your own choline is a good thing, right? It's like a battery. It's like a battery um, or having an extra gas tank. If you think of a car, an extra gas tank. But uh, for instance, we have a Prius. And so we're never stuck with just gas. Uh, we have, we can sit in traffic forever and it doesn't burn any gas. And there's that battery, which is the backup. It gives us mobility. And so the mobility that you get as a human by being able to make your own choline is phenomenal. You can take your own acetylcholine with you, right? You don't have to eat minute by minute to keep it being created. So, um, so it has to do with that. But so now her history started to go together, but I, I knew her history, right? Because I had seen her so many times before. And so I, I now, you know, had and I had a, a pretty comfortable way of being able to interpret uh, some of these things. So I thought, you know, this is the heart of your problems. It really is. You know, and so what's the remedy there? Well, the remedy there is she needs more choline than other people. And there's other people like her, by the way, that have, because she can't generate her own or very much of it, she now is 100%, nearly 100% dependent on her ability to eat her choline. Eating choline would be egg yolks, it would be liver, and there's other sources too, but, um, you know, uh, it, it suddenly made sense, but it took 20 plus years to get to that to make sense. And so that leads to, it uh, doesn't have gallstones anymore, but it leads to, if she does, I can't remember if she's had any recently, that would diminish their likelihood of, of gallstones because bile is, you know, bile is 90% phosphatidylcholine and one and, and 10% uh, cholesterol. So you need a lot of gooey, slippery phosphatidylcholine to let the, to let bile come out with the cholesterol and into your small intestine. If you don't have enough phosphatidylcholine, your bile is thick and sluggish and gooey like tar. So it's more like tar than it is like melted ice cream, right? It needs to be more like melted ice cream than tar. So there you go. There's an application that's a big deal. And so you find women in general, premenopausal, when they're making a lot of estrogen, because estrogen is a really interesting link here, when estrogen generally but specifically now for women, estrogen in their 40 years of making higher amounts of estrogen and then it drops off after menopause, it actually forces those genes that make, right, those same enzymes that make choline, the ones we've been talking about, the SNPs about that this woman had, but when you have high amounts of estrogen, it's going to force those genes to make more choline. But if those enzymes that she has SNPs for, and a lot of other people just like her. It's not working. It doesn't matter how much estrogen you have. It's still not going to work. You're still stuck. So all this estrogen is hitting these receptors and more choline is not being created. So if she has a diet that is choline deficient, and by the way, the NIH through NHANES and others have shown us that 90% of the people in the United States as of 2007 and 2008 are choline deficient. And how they figured that out is basically by a lot of interviews and so on and so forth. Um, so there you go. Let's say she's one of the 90%. She's really up a creek. So that means that she, it, it, she would be foggy mentally because she wouldn't be able to make enough uh, acetylcholine. She probably would and did have 
uh, gallstones. The same thing goes with men, by the way, too, but they don't have a part of their life in which they produce more estrogen, obviously. So they don't have, it really doesn't change for them. Either they, if these, if these, um, SNPs are not, are, are problematic, in other words, they have the ones that make them so slow, they're basically not operational. So if men have that, they're still going to have the same problem. They're still going to have an inability to make enough uh, phosphatidylcholine for bile. And so consequently, they're going to have tar-like uh, gallstones and they will have the same symptomology. So it's just that they have, their whole life is going to be much more similar. They don't have a phase of estrogen. And so uh, often, by the way, that women that have these particular mutations premenopausally are thought to be, oh, they're estrogen dominant, and that's what's causing their gallstones. Well, they're not so much estrogen dominant. They, everybody, every woman should be high in estrogen and paired with progesterone and so on and so forth. It's that, that they have broken or very poorly working enzymes that take, that receive, they can be turned on by estrogen to make acetylcholine and other forms of choline. So that's it. So there you go. So that was an example of somebody who from the past, contacted me and it took a little while to analyze her SNPs and um, her MTHFR. That is a player, it, which is important and needs to be addressed, but it's the primary one was about the choline. So I think this is a good place to stop for our, our podcast today and say that one size certainly doesn't fit all. Using data, i.e. labs and so on, is important. A lot of people, like I mentioned, there was this couple that visited me and first wife. And I don't know anything about them other than I knew them facially before. And so we've, I, I went in and I showed them this is what I do now. And they still ended up with the same question. So what would you recommend given all that you know? It's like, well, I still don't know you. Just because we talked, I don't have your labs and all these other things. There's nothing I can say. I would say... If you are looking for something that's going to change your hot flashes right now, go see somebody like I used to practice in Chinese herbal medicine, and they will probably help you. Um, but that's not how I do it anymore. I look a little more deeply. So they didn't want to do the work. They still wanted the answer. And they, I don't know, and there's a lot of people that are that way. They don't process, you know, data, getting data, personal data and having a data-driven decision-making process about what I should do. Well, that's how life is. That's what driving is all about. Person driving down the street is an ongoing data-driven decision-maker. Do I go faster or slower? Do I stop? Do I go left or I go right? That's in the flow, data-driven decision-making. And medicine should be no less than that. So hope I didn't chew your ear off and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldkamikin for a brief reminder of something I completely forget to do at the end of every episode. You've heard me talk long enough in many different episodes, but what I would love you to do, and many of you have already done this, I just want to reinforce this particular behavior, which is to send me your questions. Send me your questions and anything you have about keto. If there's something that I don't know, I will look it up. And if it's something that intrigues me, I will probably make an episode, uh, a podcast about that particular topic. So what you need to do is to send me your questions at drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. So that's D-R-G-O-L-D-K-A-M-P at 
K-E-T-O-N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H.com. Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Feel free to join our Facebook group, which is also ketonaturopath.com. That's been growing lately. You also have to answer a questionnaire should you choose to join. And I don't ask for your email. I ask that you follow our terms. I try to avoid uh, advertising and uh, the obvious interruptions of just a good Facebook group. So hope to see you at one place or other. Please send me your questions and uh, look forward to talking to you and getting to know you. Take care.